Digging into a family research project is no longer just for folks who are tracing their own ancestry. It's now a crime-fighting tool as well, and it's used by experts in the fast-growing field of forensic genealogy. I am really going to be geeking out today because this stuff just fascinates me. I've done a lot of research into my own family tree, and to see these techniques used to help solve crimes is nothing short of amazing. I'm really glad that you joined me for this episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison, and I want us to tackle another story from the world of true crime, and then we'll see what spiritual and safety information we can find there. I really think that every Christian's calling is to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. So stick around. We will go into some practical ways that we can do just that. This is Season 4, Episode 5. Our book this week is The Boy in the Box, The Unsolved Case of America's Unknown Child by David Stout. This has been a very famous case for a very long time, so you may have heard of it. And we've got a great guest this week, too, forensic genealogist Daphne Dennis of Dennis Investigations. I think that a lot of you know that the first really big case that brought forensic genealogy or genetic genealogy to our attention was when they solved the Golden State Killer case. Now, today's case didn't catch a killer, but it did give a murdered child back his name after 65 long years. The Fox Chase area of Philadelphia was still filled with woods and fields back in the 1950s. And maybe that's why whoever killed the boy in the box chose that particular area to dump his tiny little body. It still had enough trees that at least one young man set small game traps there. He was the first known person to spot that cardboard box. And when he did, at first, he thought it was a large doll. But when he looked a little bit closer, he could see that the figure inside that box was a little boy. Could the boy's killer have been found if he had told the police what he'd seen right away? We'll never know. He was the son of immigrants who had fled a brutal regime, and he knew that they would not be very happy if they saw the police at their door. And besides, he thought they might take his traps, so he stayed silent. Not long after that, another young man was in the same area, and he would later say that he'd been chasing after a rabbit when he saw the box that served as a sort of coffin for this little boy. He didn't really want to talk to the police either, not after they'd paid him a visit about complaints that he was actually in that area to spy on young girls at the Good Shepherd School for Wayward Girls right there by those woods. But finally, his conscience got the best of him, and he told his brother Carl what he had found. Now, Carl was a priest, and he convinced his brother to call the police. The responding officer had been on the job long enough to know that calls to check on so-called found bodies often were something entirely different. But it didn't take him even a minute to realize that this call was the real deal. Homicide detectives were sent to the scene along with the medical examiner. When they removed the boy's body from the box, they found that he was covered with bruises. And none of those men could imagine what this small child could possibly have done to set off this kind of rage in an adult. They felt so sure that once they ran a picture of the boy's face in the newspaper, someone would recognize him. And then they'd be halfway to finding his killer. It did seem strange when they checked that in the last couple of months, no one in the area had reported a child missing. They followed up on what leads they had, but none of them got them any closer to identifying the little boy, let alone his killer. 
Authorities put flyers out about the boy in utility bills, in post offices, in store windows, and none of it got them any closer to their goal of identifying this little boy. So they called in the FBI. Then a good Samaritan came forward, saying that he had seen a woman with a teenager pulled over beside the road near where the little boy was found. He thought maybe they needed help with a flat tire, but when he offered, the woman just waved him away. After that, months passed with very little progress, and it was agreed that the boy did need to finally be laid to rest. Since his family hadn't been found, he was buried in a potter's field with only police officers to mourn his passing. The child's donated headstone read, Heavenly Father, bless this unknown boy. Leads that would go nowhere continued to come in. And three years after the boy's death, police investigated a family for neglect. The mother readily confessed to having a daughter who had died. Being too poor to afford a funeral, they simply put the toddler's body in the garbage. Yes, things like that really do happen. Now, the police were interested in the fact that this family had visited the Fox Chase area around the time that the boy's body had been discovered, but they never could find out anything that would tie the family to the crime. Another family was found in similar circumstances, and they were living in Florida. They had spent their entire lives following carnivals looking for work. They also admitted to having multiple children die and being too poor to give them a proper burial. They said they put one in a lake and another in a phosphate mine. Two others were left in a river. It certainly wasn't a stretch after hearing that to think that they could have left one in a cardboard box in the woods. After investigating the family's travel a bit more, it looked like they weren't the parents of the boy in the box after all. A more promising lead was a foster home in the area. That lead was worked for years, and it never got police any closer to identifying the little boy. Then in 1998, the famed Vidoc Society took up the case. Now, you may remember that I did an episode on their fascinating work in an earlier season, and I've put a link to that in the show notes. They're basically a volunteer group of investigative experts in all kinds of fields who review unsolved cases. Now, having them take up this case spurred another cold case resource, TV show America's Most Wanted with John Walsh. They decided to feature the case. It had now been 41 years, but even with this extra help, the boy in the box remained unidentified. The last best hope would now lie in exhuming his body and hoping that DNA can do what nothing else has been able to, give this boy back his name. Of course, DNA is really only helpful if you have something to compare it to. Another promising lead surfaced in 2002 when a woman came forward with a horrific story of her abusive childhood and the little boy that she remembered coming to live in her house. Her parents were very respected members of their community, and she says that not only did they abuse her, they somehow acquired this little boy that her mother beat to death in a fit of rage. No one had missed him because no one knew he was there. He was forced to live in the basement for the two years that he was with them. This woman described going with her mother to some woods and leaving the boy in a cardboard box. She remembered that good Samaritan stopping to offer help and her mother waving him away. Her psychiatrist confirmed to police that she'd been telling him this same story for over a decade before there was a website dedicated to the case where she might have read these details. Investigators went to the house where the woman had lived. The details of her story were consistent with everything they saw there. 
that the DNA would not be of any help confirming this story because the woman claimed that the child had basically been bought by her mother and she didn't know from who. Over the years, people have come forward claiming that the boy in the box is a relative of theirs, but none of them have had their DNA match his. And that's where our book, which was written back in 2008, ends. But less than three months ago, science finally won. The boy in the box, America's child, was identified as four-year-old Joseph Augustus Zarelli. A cousin of little Joseph uploaded their DNA into a public database, and investigative genetic genealogy did the rest. Further testing established who Joseph's parents are, and you can read more about them by clicking the link that I've put to an article about them in the show notes. But little Joseph's death remains an open homicide investigation. Now it's time to geek out with my guest, professional forensic genealogist Daphne Dennis. Daphne is a nationally published journalist, writer, and author, and the founder of Dennis Investigations. Daphne, I am so glad that you could join us today because these are subjects that I just really geek out on. So I'm excited <laughs> I do too. to ask you some questions. Okay. So, but before we get any deeper, though, let's just do like a 30-second kind of high-level overview. So tell us what exactly forensic or investigative genealogy is. Well, it's pretty simple. Basically, a forensic genealogist is someone who uses his or her skills to research and identify and document familial relationships. And often they're related to a specific individual. You know, you think of the sunset killer, somebody you have someone in mind and you're doing the genealogy. And you have to utilize methods and provide documentation of, of their findings that would be acceptable in a court of law. We forget that part, that the court will not just accept anything. It has to be in a certain form. It has to be provable. And, you know, you have to do things right. So I'm exactly. sure you have guidelines that you follow. Yes. And I have testified in court as well. I was an expert genealogist. So that all evolves, I think, as, as technology evolves as well. But you have to be able to prove what you're saying in order to make that connection. You can't just say, well, this guy's father was Joe Blow, and so he's Joe Blow Jr. You know, you have to go a little bit more in depth than that. <laughs> Well, and I know that not everything that you investigate has to do with a criminal case. You've searched for lost heirs. You help people build out their family histories. You've worked on cases where people have been adopted or maybe they've given a child up for adoption. But you do work with law enforcement from time to time. So I want you to tell us about the time that you helped a New York City homicide detective capture a fugitive. Yeah, that was pretty interesting. It was sort of a confluence of different events. And it was uh, pre-DNA, which you have to sort of couch this by because otherwise it wouldn't have been a story. I had been working on a case for a client where I'd done extensive research on a murder in New York City in 1892 or 1832. I don't remember which. I think it was 1832. But I was able to locate the original police reports, the court records, and just some other really, really cool documents And as a result of that, I was mentioned in an article, the New York Daily News had published about genealogy and genealogical resources and things like that. And I got a call one day from a Brooklyn homicide detective who had read the article and he contacted me and he was kind of thinking outside the box. He thought maybe I would be able to help him with a case he was working on in Brooklyn. And the story was that a woman in a bodega was working in the bodega, had been killed in a robbery. 
she was actually hit over the head with a stock filled with coins and, and killed. All they knew about the suspect was the guy's name. And uh, he thought, you know, he knew that he had skipped town. He didn't know where he was going. The rumor on the street was that this guy was going to hide out with his family. And the suspect had a really common name, but he had an unusual spelling to it, which helped. I had the resources available of using the Social Security Death Index, which I used to search for that last name. I did a lot of work looking sort of clusters of individuals in the United States, primarily in the South, which was where he was rumored to have run off to. We located these people with the same spelling, the name, and they were in various states. So I then went to the New York Public Library and I spent hours and hours poring over microfilm telephone books for the areas I had identified as places where there were these clusters of people with that name. And then I combined the two resources, which is the Social Security Death Index and the telephone books, and I was able to narrow it down enough that I was able to give the detective a list of areas where I thought the suspect's family might be living. He focused on those areas and he was able to locate the suspect living in North Carolina and hanging out with his parents. So it was pretty interesting sort of a way of using resources that were not at that time available online. It was really like you say, boots on the ground kind of stuff, you know? I think a lot of people think that anytime you're investigating anything that you just get on the computer Mm -hmm. and you you ask it a few questions, you use Google and you Mm -hmm. find everything you need. But you really had to go back to what we call primary sources. Mm-hmm. So explain for us what those primary sources are, how you find them, and what kind of things you can glean from those. Well, the way that primary sources are defined as they're records for which the information that's contained in whatever document it is was provided directly from the person or people involved. Examples of this would be like marriage licenses when you're giving your own information, divorce records, birth certificates, social security applications, naturalizations, and to some extent, death certificates. If someone who knew you really well, your daughter, your your brother, someone like that, provided the information as the informant of the death certificate. So that's what are really the primary sources. And other things can be accessed that are also related to that, but are not as much primary. The problem with with finding these things is that many of these records are under privacy concerns or not being accessible, maybe budgetary considerations. They're not really that easily accessible. So it depends also, which makes it even more complicated, on the country, the state, the province, the county, and sometimes even the townships that holds those records in order to make them available to people. They may not be online. People may think they're the whole story of the document, but they're not. The genealogy sites in particular do offer thousands and thousands of records, but you have to be really careful about what the omissions are as well when you're looking at something like that. Because some of the records that you may want, let's say you want to find somebody's marriage record and you go online and you find the people that you're looking for, the same names, about the right date, and they were married. People may think, oh, good, okay, I found the marriage. But in reality, they may not have the records. They may have been burned up. They may not be available for privacy reasons, whatever reasons. They think they have the marriage, but they don't. What they really need is the actual document. Some areas are online for the marriages. But if you're in a state where all you find is that copy of the index and you think you found the marriage, 
you really need to go further. You need to go to the courthouse. You need to find the actual marriage if you can, because that'll tell you things like the bride and the groom's age, their occupations, their full names, any information about previous marriages is often on there. You may be able to find the date that a divorce was granted or that a spouse died. And they will also provide a lot of information about the parents of the couple. They'll tell you their occupation, whether they're dead a lot. And then you need to look also, for example, at the people who witnessed the marriage. Is that the same name as the bride? Is that her sister with married name? You know, you can extrapolate a whole genealogy of someone sometimes by just looking at one of those documents. And if that particular document is not online, you're going to think, oh, great, I found the marriage and it ends there. Sometimes the sites only make certain documents available for certain dates, and they don't really advertise that as much. They'll say, look up the North Carolina marriages. You look up North Carolina marriages and you don't find the person. And you say, oh my goodness, what does that mean? It may just mean that they have North Carolina marriages up until five years before the date that you need, or they might have a gap in that information. And you might not be able to find what you want, not because it's not there somewhere, but that it's because it's somewhere else. And that's where it comes into the old going to the courthouse, going to the library, give up just because you don't find somebody. And if you find somebody and you're not entirely sure that they're the right person, you know, you have two people who got married, but you can't really prove that they're the right couple. You don't want to run with that information either, because until you're sure the right couple that you're looking for is the couple that you found, you can get yourself all mixed up with the wrong person's family tree and you could have done somebody else's entire family tree. That really even applies to criminal investigations. Exactly. I've used um, even newspaper archives, especially if you've, if you've got a case that's yep. been cold for a while. And newspapers are notorious for getting things wrong mm-hmm. because sometimes in their rush to get the story out, they haven't necessarily fact-checked everything. So you can get different spellings of names. You can get close but different dates. Yep. The other- so for me, it's always helpful if you can find another document that will back up the information you found on the first one. And generally, if you really want to be sure, you need to try and find at least one of those primary documents. Some states and some counties and some jurisdictions, I guess is the best word to use. You can go in, in the county that I live in now, I can go and I can look up a marriage online. I won't find the marriage certificate, but I can go to the website for the marriages and I can find that two people were married, you know, last week. There are places where you can't find that going back 50 years for privacy reasons or for other reasons. But the other thing about the newspaper archives that I found that I really get crazy about is that there are about four or five different major places that put newspapers online and they're searchable and everything's great with that. But a lot of them will say, okay, we have newspapers from Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, but they won't have all of them for all dates or they won't have local newspapers. Some are better for having local newspapers which I always think is the better place to get the information because A, the reporter is probably more on top of the people involved and will get more of the facts right, maybe. And also because you may not find anything at all if they don't have a newspaper that covers that specific county. If it's not a huge crime, you look up Pennsylvania and you look up the criminal's name and you don't find anything. And they also have gaps in, in dates. I learned 
recently that there was a whole issue with one of the Pennsylvania papers and copyright restrictions. And it became a whole legal thing about, well, if the reporter wrote the story and he had the copyright or, you know, there was some kind of whole legal involvement thing on what could and could not be put online in those sites. So sometimes if things are recent enough, you can actually go to the newspaper itself, try and find if they have any archives of their own. And if they don't, you know, the best place to go is to the library. Try and find a library that's in that area that's big enough. Most libraries will have amazing things of their own state or county's holdings that you wouldn't find online because they haven't been scanned or, or they haven't been considered worthwhile. I think it's a combination, really, of, of looking for things and by the same token, finding something, making sure what you found is right, but also making sure that what you're looking at would have something that you like. Sometimes I'll put something in, if I'm doing a search on a newspaper site, I'll put something in like, John Smith died October 5th, 1972. And if I don't get a John Smith that died in 1972 or on October 5th or on October, I go back and check, do they have the area that I'm looking at online? You're pretty much likely to find a guy who died in a certain year with a name like John Smith. And if you don't find him, then you got to think, well, maybe that paper isn't represented here. Well, that's a great point. And I think, too, we can get a little over-dependent on the computer because sometimes the best way to get information, whether you're doing a family tree just for the family or if you're trying to do something in a criminal investigation, just talking to people yep. is an amazing way yep. to get information. If you approach them right, you'd be amazed what people will tell you. Absolutely. And, and that also works with places like recorders and deeds offices, county courthouses, marriage license bureaus. If you go in saying that you want this document, you're nice to the people and they'll, they'll get it for you if they can. And sometimes it's a little iffy and they decide whether it's right or not. But Sometimes they'll just say, no, this, no, I'm not going to get there. We have to go all the way down to the basement. I have to look through the boxes to find it. I'll just tell her uh -huh. it doesn't exist. And I've had wills that I've had copies of, actual copies of the wills from the family and needed to get certified copies and gone to places and been told they don't exist because they just don't feel like doing it. And I've gone down to the basements myself and looked for it. You know, I said, all right, I'll go down. You know, you're having lunch, sit there, enjoy your lunch. Let me go down and look. I know what the basement looks like down there. And, you know, sometimes they will. They probably shouldn't. I mean, when you think about things being taken or destroyed, but that's that's what happens. I think you're you're kind of giving us a 101 on things you need to know if this is the kind of work or, or hobby you want to get into. Right. But what else would you tell somebody if they're interested in doing something similar to what you're doing? Where would they start? Oh, my goodness. Well, I would start probably with my own family tree. I would pick somebody that you're interested in, an author, an actor, somebody like that. And I would try and do a family tree on that person. And I would try and take what I knew already about the person and use that to build it up. But then I would try and think sort of outside of the box. I'd try and think about where else could I get this information? And there are all kinds of places, historical societies, libraries, medical libraries, cemeteries, places that people don't even think about that much. I was working with a guy who was writing a biographer of a famous blues singer from the 20s. And City College in New York had an entire library devoted to her because she had lived in that area. She was very involved in the, the whole jazz scene in New York. And I found the most incredible 
incredible things there. And I would not have thought about necessarily going to a library that wasn't the New York Public Library. But there are libraries that hold collections of things because they were gifted to them, whether they wanted them or not, you know, somebody's papers, whatever. And I would just try and find whatever I could out about that person not using the internet first. Universities often have collections. Exactly. People who've gone to school there or had some sort of connection with the area or with the school itself. Or if you read that the guy was affiliated with the Brothers of whatever fraternal club, you know, see what they have. Go into places, Mm -hmm. look at pictures that are on the walls and talk to people. And again, looking in newspapers and things like that, try and look for other things as well. Because oftentimes when you're looking for somebody, and this is probably up to like the 1970s, 80s even, when you look for a person, you want to find the birth of Jane and John Doe's daughter, right? And you look them up and you look up Jane and John Doe. You want to find a birth announcement or something about her to get her name or where she was born, whatever. Up until those times, most people were referred to as Mr. and Mrs. John Doe. They didn't always use women's names, their whole names, even on obituaries Mm -hmm. often. So they're all, I, I think part of it is getting really familiar with the time frame you're researching and what people thought about at that time words that we don't use now because we find them anywhere from racist to just unpleasant are words that were commonly used in other times and not always meant to be pejorative, you know, words that take Mm -hmm. on different meanings. So think about how people were regarded by themselves, by society. Think about what things were considered major in those days. What were the important things that were going on? And look at ads too. If you go through newspapers, Don't just look at the names. Somebody might have owned a business and had that business listed in there. Write down the addresses, see who's living there, look at the deeds, who bought the house from whom, and do all that kind of stuff that is not really just getting on the computer and looking up your ancestor's name or this person's name. And don't always trust other people's family tree because a lot of the sites like Ancestry, and it's a great thing, can be a really good thing, but a lot of people will be building a tree and it will say, here's your person's name listed in other trees. And you go, oh, great, that's the family. And you just click on it and all the documents come over to yours. You know, Make sure right. that what you're importing into your tree, or the tree of the person that you're doing, is exactly the right thing. And become familiar with naming customs. John and Mary Abate. And they had children named John and Mary Abate. I kept getting confused on the dates of the daughters. I was like, well, not only was that a custom to name your children after you, Whereas in the Jewish religion, you don't. You name your children with the first initial of a grandparent that's dead. But in this case, they had also, this is another thing that Italians culture used to do, maybe still does, but an Irish Catholic culture did it a lot. They would, if some child died very young, they would just name the next kid the same name. Interesting. Yeah, this family had lost about three little girls named Mary. And so the fourth one that I was researching and looking for was the fourth Mary. But she had all these different dates of birth. How is this happening? You know? So then I went back and looked for the deaths, and I found the deaths of the first three. And I knew that the fourth one was the right one because I didn't find any more dying after that with the name Mary. So that was good. But those kind of things are really important. And a lot of people have come with sort of come away as a society from that part of our roots. People do things sometimes because their parents did it or because their parents didn't do it or because they, they don't really connect with the reasons for certain things happening. The reasons mm-hmm. of, for example, having so many children die in childbirth. And look at the time. Was it 
Um, and something happened in 1918 in Philadelphia and people left and I don't know where they went. I know enough to say, well, that was the great influenza. Many, many people left and went to the Jersey Shore to get the fresh air or they went mm-hmm. as far out of the county as they could to avoid the influenza. So try and, you know, don't kill yourself on it, but try and just look at a newspaper from that time and see what was going on, see what people were talking about. You can usually get a good idea if you combine enough things that put it all together. Well, and for everybody listening, if this kind of research fascinates you, but you want to kind of use it in a true crime way, check out the Doe Network. Absolutely. Believe it or not, there are thousands upon thousands of remains that are unidentified. Kind of like our story today, the boy in the box. People deserve to have their names paired with who they are. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us. and. Tell us all, if we want to look into the work that you're doing and get in connection with you, how do we do that? Well, um, I am at Daphne, the genealogist, which for those of you who are real novices is spelled G-E-N-E-A-L-O-G-I-S-T at gmail.com. And I so enjoy talking to you. I mean, the work that so many people do is so connected. You know, DNA and genealogy is like a match made between science and history. And it's wonderful, wonderful connection. And finding people and using the different ways that you can find out who they were or find out who they are. It's amazing that we can do these things. And I'm happy to live in a world where we're blessed to have these tools in our availability. Oh, for sure. Well, thank you again. And everybody check out the show notes because I will have links for you to find the things that we've talked about. and. Best of luck on all of your upcoming cases. Thank I, you. again, I'm fangirling. I'm fascinated. I, I'm going to be following you. I'm fangirling you. you two back. So, you know, we are like, we could get together and fangirl each other. It'd be great. <laughs> I would. Thanks again. Thank and take you care. so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I really took a lot of time thinking about the Bible passage that I wanted to talk about in conjunction with this case. And since so much of it was about DNA. I really wanted to talk about our identity. So I want to read from John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. DNA testing is so great for establishing our earthly identity and confirming who family members are. But for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, we have an additional identity. We are children of God. It's not conditional on what we've done or what others have done to us. All that matters is our faith. And that should cause us to look at ourselves a little differently and at other people around us. Now, if this episode has you ready to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact, Check out the show notes for ways to volunteer with the Doe Network or even your local law enforcement agency. Did you know you can do that? Now, different agencies will have their own guidelines about what volunteers are allowed to do and what they're not. But many will allow volunteers to check the jurisdiction for abandoned vehicles, to do safety checks for vacationing homeowners. They'll let them help compile crime statistics, assist with search and rescue operations, and maybe even cold case files. Give your local authorities a call and see what you might be able to do. You'll learn so much about how to keep yourself, your family, and your community 
even safer. Be sure to check out earlier episodes of the podcast. I have been so blessed to have amazing guests, and they've given me fantastic information that you don't want to miss. And you can also help someone else begin their journey as a different kind of PI, a person of impact. When you share this episode, when you subscribe, give me a five-star rating and a nice review, and that'll kick the algorithm to push out the unlovely truth to more people so we can really make a difference. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neocortex and the artwork by Shelby Highland. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app. 